And we will be in chapter 6 and verse 33. You'll find that on page 861 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, please take that Pew Bible in front of you uh, home as uh, your own copy of God's Word. We'd love for you to do that. Luke chapter 6, verse 31. And as we're getting ready, I, I see our, our brother Dave Tazilar out here. Um, Dave, it's good to see you. I wish it were happier uh, occasion. Of course, uh, many of you know Dave's uh, father, uh, Tom, just passed away um, this week. And uh, Dave is our missionary in Tijuana, Mexico. And uh, we love you, brother, and we're praying for you and Debbie and your entire family. And we're thankful for the gospel at times like this. So. This morning, I, I want to direct your attention now to Luke chapter 6 and verse 33, a wonderful passage of our Lord teaching us who he is and what he's come to do. Please hear now the word of God. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled. The skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires the new. For he says, the old is good. Our Father, we thank you for this word in which Christ has given us. We thank you for this time to come now and to, to listen to him. We're drawn here uh, today because of his work 2,000 years ago. Even as we sang it in, in somewhat of a continued amazement, and can it truly be that thou, our God, should die for me, for us? We're drawn here because the blood has been spilled of our Lord. Now we come to his feet because we want to learn from him. And I wonder, Father, if, if some of us are just not ready right now. Even as I'm preparing, Father, I, I wonder if I'm ready. And so I just ask humbly as your son, Father, will your spirit descend upon us? Will you give us a, a hunger for your word this morning? A hunger to know Jesus, that we might follow him more faithfully and find our delight in him more completely. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to share with you a story this morning as I begin, as I, as I often do. It is a story that I've shared with you before, so you'll have to forgive me on that, but I find it so compelling. It is a, I think if I have one, maybe, well, I have many heroes, but um, this is one of the top heroes of mine, a man named Charles Spurgeon, who many declared the greatest English-speaking preacher ever. And I find his story that he writes of his conversion at the age of 15 on January 6th in 1850 so incredibly compelling. May I share from his words? I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. 
When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45 and verse 22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It just says, look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. Anyone can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner. Look unto me. Look unto me. When he had gone to about that length and managed to spin out about ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery. And I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow. Struck right home. He continued, And you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey it now, this moment you will be saved. Then lifting his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and to live. And I saw at once the way of salvation. I know, I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, and I looked. I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And at that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them, of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks to Him alone. There's so much in that story that I find compelling. And we could probably spend some time considering it, but I, I simply for our purposes this morning want you to note the transformation that took place in Pastor Spurgeon's life. 
how he mentioned that he might have been in darkness and despair even to this moment if it were not for that uh, that particular Sunday. He he said that he was miserable, as this pastor pointed out. And yet, after meeting Christ, the, the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. He saw the sun. I, I could have risen that instant, he said, and sung with the most enthusiastic of them. This is what meeting Jesus does. It ta- he takes people from despair and brings them into delight from misery and, and brings them into jubilation. Have we not seen this in our study of Luke's Gospel? A leper comes to him, unclean and outcast, meets Jesus and leaves clean and restored and shouting to everybody. A, a paralyzed man meets Jesus coming down through a roof, totally helpless in his life. He meets Jesus and he is healed and forgiven and leaves carrying his bed, glorifying God. And last week we saw Levi, this man mired in sin, a pursuit of, of greed and wealth and materialism, and he meets Jesus and he walks away from it all just to throw a party for Jesus. You see, the, what Luke is showing us is when people meet Jesus, they go from grief to gladness. They go from despair to delight. At least most people do. Not everyone, of course. Because we've not only seen these characters, we've also seen the uh, religious conservatives of the day, haven't we? It's now, I think, the third time in which the Pharisees make their appearance. I like how one person defined the Pharisee as saying he's a person who suffers from an overwhelming dread that somewhere, sometime, somehow, someone may be enjoying himself. And it seems like they're angry constantly with Jesus. They're, they're angry that Jesus forgives sin. They call him a blasphemer. They're angry with Jesus spending time with sinners. One pastor said, Jesus calls Levi and parties with the low life of Capernaum and the hand-washing Pharisees went into orbit. And now we find them angry that he's not fasting. In fact, earlier they criticized that he was eating and drinking with sinners. Now they're going to criticize that he's eating and drinking at all. He's too happy, right? There's too much joy in your life. You're celebrating too much. You need to mourn. Don't you understand we're religious? We need to be sour and solemn. And Jesus says, no. No, I don't realize that at all. In fact, I want to live much differently than that. And what ensues is a dialogue that we, we discover the, the joy in which Jesus brings, the, the delight that it is to know Christ, the longing and the love that he brings into our hearts. So let's consider it this morning with God's help as we think about, firstly, Jesus brings joy, not sorrow. Verse 33, the Bible says, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And so they, they asked the question, verse 33, Why don't you fast? And you notice what Jesus does in verse 34. He answers their question with a question. And he says, Why should we mourn? Why should we be sad? In fact, this whole passage, though the context is fasting, and we're going to learn a little bit about fasting this morning, which I assume is what you woke up this morning hoping to get a good sermon on, fasting, right? So we'll, we'll spend some time there. But I want you to understand that this text isn't mostly about fasting. 
It's about who Jesus is. It's, it's about how to live with Jesus. And fasting is simply the context of which Jesus teaches us about himself. But before we even kind of dive in there, there's, there's, this, let me give you a footnote because there's something very interesting happening, I think, that we could apply immediately to our lives. You see in verse 33, there, there are three groups, aren't there? There's Jesus' group, there's the Pharisees' group, and then interestingly enough, there's John, the baptizer's group. Did you note that? Well, just forget about the, the Pharisees for a moment. You have John's disciples and Jesus' disciples, and evidently they see the issue of fasting differently, don't they? Now, I have no doubt in my mind that John's not teaching anything contrary to the gospel. He's a prophet of God. I, I, he's teaching about eternal life and repentance and salvation through faith. And yet, even that, John, John's disciples and Jesus' disciples, on the matter of fasting, disagree. There, there's a difference there, isn't there? And, and this, I just wanted to pause for a moment to show us an example of those who follow Jesus, those who follow God, sometimes disagree on minor issues. Might be the mode of baptism or church government or the continuation of spiritual gifts or the sovereignty of God. Christians have never been of one mind on these issues, not even from the very beginning. And so I want you to understand that we can disagree on these things. We can regret the disagreements, but we could, I think, more appropriately rejoice in the things that unite all Christians together, the significant truths. I like how St. Augustine once said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. I think he's right. I think on the last day when you and I stand before God, it won't matter much what we thought about the church government or our understanding of fasting. I think he wants to know, did you receive Christ? Did you live a life of joyful obedience to him? And so I find that interesting. So let's, uh, let's recognize that these disagreements have always been there. All right, close that footnote. Let's move on to, into the text. They're talking about fasting. They say, okay, the, the Pharisees fast, the, their disciples fast. Why aren't you fasting? Now, it, the fasting, uh, you see a lot of that in the Old Testament. And you read the Old Testament, you're going to see a lot of fasts. But what's interesting is that there's only one time that God commands a fast. It's on the Day of Atonement. And so on the Day of Atonement, the people of God were to fast at that time as they sought God's forgiveness as they repented from their sin. You can read about it in Leviticus 16. But all the other fasts that we see in the Bible are not commanded by God. They're all voluntary. Many of them are private and individual. Some of them, though, are the whole nation. And they're fasting usually uh, in, in, when sin is around as a, as a way to repent of sin, or, or they're fasting because there's some obstacle before them. So Moses and Daniel fasted over Israel's sin. Nineveh, remember them? They fasted over their own sin. Ezra called a fast in order to get safe passage from Babylon back to the promised land. Uh, Esther fasted, didn't she, before she went and, and met the king. David fasted while his son was dying. Even John the baptizer, he's, he's fasting. Of course, his diet consists of locusts, so you might fast too if that's what you're eating. But he's, he's out there in the desert, and isn't he? He's calling for repentance, and he's, and he's calling for, for us to turn from our sin and praying for the, the Messiah. You see, the fasts were almost always in these desperate situations. They're almost always associated with grief or mourning, and almost never are they mandated by God. They're, they're, they're almost never, except on that one occasion, commanded by God until the Pharisees show up, and they say, yes, we all must fast. In fact, not just fast once a year, but fast weekly. And in fact, not once a week, but the Pharisees actually fasted twice a week. Luke 18, 12, the Pharisee boasts, I fast twice a week. And this is with their great pride. And sometimes what happens is that religion becomes solemn and joyless. 
We like, we like to wear ash on our heads and old clothes and mope around. And, and, and we're not, some people think we're not spiritual unless we're miserable. I appreciate the story that Irma Brombeck once said of a church one Sunday morning when a small child turned around and began to smile at the people behind her. When her mother noticed, she told her daughter in that strong motherly whisper, stop that grinning, you're in church. Right? And gave her a swat and said, that's better. Right? That's what the godly did, right? It's a sign of devotion. And righteous, in Jesus' day, fasted. And then along comes Jesus, this rabbi, this teacher, and, and he's not doing it. He just seems entirely too happy. He's going to too many dinner parties. And they want to know, aren't you spiritual, Jesus? In which he responds in verse 34. And Jesus said to them, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? In, in Matthew's account of this, the same event, Jesus says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? It doesn't make sense, does it, on the occasion to fast? You, you go to weddings and you don't, you don't see guests sitting around mourning, do you? They're not weeping, unless they're my mother, right? And, and then she, but most of the guests aren't weeping, are they? It's a time of celebration, right? You, you get dressed up, you, you have good food, you have fine drink, and Jesus is saying, the wedding's begun, it's time to celebrate. The groom has arrived, right? The, the party is here, let's cut the cake, let's serve the food, let's pour the wine, it's time to celebrate. It is not a time of fasting. In fact, the fast at this time would be terribly inappropriate, it would be insulting to Jesus, I appreciate, uh, Lynn mentioned that, that, uh, her son is getting married, uh, this Saturday, and I have the great honor to be able to perform that ceremony. And we, we spent a number of times, Jared and Abby and I, just preparing for marriage and, and premarital counseling, and we talked about the service. And but could you imagine if I said to them, I know you guys are planning on a reception. Have you guys even considered maybe at the wedding reception, we could fast? All right? Right? We could just all, you know, after you get married, we could all just, there'd be no food or no, maybe water or something, and we could all just sit around and, and mope for a little bit and cry and weep, right? Well, if I would have said that, they would have thought I was crazy, right? And, and rightly so. That would be even insulting, wouldn't it? You see, what Jesus is saying is the groom is here. It is time to celebrate. In fact, John the baptizer even knew it. For John chapter 3, verse 29, he says, The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly in the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Jesus has come to bring joy, not sorrow. He's come to bring salvation. He's the one we're made for. He says, you can't fast now. Right? Even in our study of Luke's gospel, I mean, he's defeating the devil. He's forgiving sin. He's teaching truth. He has power and compassion. Lepers are cleansed. The possessed are free. The paralyzed walk. The sick heal. The poor have the good news preached to them. He has brought the year of Jubilee. He says, as long as I am with you, there ought to be no mourning. I bring joy. In fact, weeping, fasting is totally inappropriate. And I think you need to understand this. What Christ is saying, you want to know how to live, Christian. Well, being a Christian is is more like going to a wedding feast than anything else. It's a time of jubilation, a time of joy. In fact, the Bible, I don't know if you're aware, commands you to be joyful. It commands you to have joy. Rejoice in the Lord. Right? Again, I will say, rejoice. Right? That is a biblical command. The reason why the Bible commands us to be joyful is because it ins it's insulting to Jesus to say, I belong to Jesus. I'm saved by Jesus. I will be with Jesus forever. And yet I'm going to live a dour, joyless life. Right? Understand Christian life is not hang on. We'll get there soon. Right? Just, just bear with this life and one day we'll make it. He's come to give us abundant life to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice 
and what he's done. If you have trouble rejoicing, being a joyful life, you need to meditate more on who Christ is and what he has accomplished for you. You need to think about your sin being forgiven, that you've been declared righteous. The Holy Spirit lives within you. You're a child of God. You're headed to eternity. You ought to become more like Peter, who says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That's what Jesus brought. He's brought us joy. But he also brings us God's love. I think this is a very interesting metaphor, isn't it? In verse 34, it raises the question in my mind, why does Jesus call himself the groom? Why is he choosing that metaphor? And I think the reason is, if you were understood the biblical context in which Jesus is living, he, he's, he's using this metaphor because this is how God has referred to himself over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And so when Jesus says the groom has arrived, he is very much claiming to be the God of the Old Testament. For instance, in Isaiah 62 and verse 5, It says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Hosea 2, in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and I will betroth you to me forever. Jeremiah, does a maiden forget her jewelry, a bride her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me. How skilled you are at pursuing love. Even the worst of women can learn from your ways. You lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Is there any place in which you have not been ravished? Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am merciful. Return, faithless people, for I am your husband. Again and again and again, God announces who he is to the people of God. He says, I'm your bridegroom. I have betrothed you to be my people. And Jesus shows up and says, that's me. I am the groom. I have come for my bride. For generations, for centuries, these people have been longing for this day, fasting that he one day would come. And Jesus says, I'm here. Which, uh, uh, which raises, I think, the, the, another question is, well, why did God ever refer? If Jesus says, I'm the groom to tell us he's God, why did God ever use that as a metaphor to describe himself? Why does he call himself a husband or a bridegroom? Well, I think because it tells us the kind of relationship that he wants with us, doesn't it? He's trying to explain to us the, the type of relationship we're supposed to have. He's just not a king and, and we're his subjects. Or he's just not a shepherd and we're his sheep. He, he's not even just a father and we're his children. No, he, he is so profoundly committed to you and I in love that the best analogy he could draw together is that of a husband and his wife. This is the heart of Christianity. It's at his very heart. You see, Christianity is it, it, not duty. It's not Sunday morning obligation. It's not, I'm just going to have this little Christian part of me here and then I just live the rest of my life. Well, Christianity is God wanting all of you. He's wanting to shower you with his love and invite you into a relationship that will change you forever. Change every aspect of who you are. I am the bridegroom. I am devoted to you. I think this is what it means when Jesus says he's the bridegroom. He has this devoted love for us. He is devoted to us, just not today, but forever. You know, the reason why we we get excited at weddings is not because two people love each other. We don't gather together, I I think, at weddings because two people are are really in love. No, we gather together to hear them devote themselves to each other to be loving in the future. To make vows. To enter into a covenant. Right? We, We don't all get excited when one guy in the back of the car says to a girl, you know, I really love you right now. Right? We don't throw a party for that. 
What, what we do throw a party is when uh, we have this wedding and there is this beautiful declaration that, that I am giving myself to you from this point on. Sickness and health, rich or poor, better or worse, I am yours until death rips us apart. I belong to you. It is a promise of devoted love. And so Christ says, I am, I am your groom. He's saying to, I love you so much. I am devoted to you like a husband is devoted to you. In fact, he declares, I think, it, it is a, a permanent love. When he says, I'm the bridegroom, he, he's saying, I am permanently committed to you. I, I commit myself to you. I, I'll never leave you. My, my love will never grow old for you. My, my love will never end for you. I am your husband. I, my love is, is, is everlasting for you. Now, I know when we think about that in our context, we think, wait a second. Wait, wait a second. Because I, I know a lot of men who haven't been faithful I know a lot of men who have walked away. They weren't permanently committed. My my dad didn't stay, or my uncle didn't stay, or my husband didn't stay. And so what do you mean when he says, I'm your uh, your husband, that he's permanently devoted to us? Well, let me, let me say a couple of things to that objection. The first thing I would say to you is that Jesus is a much better husband. Right? I don't care how good your husband is, or was, or your dad, or your uncle, or who. Jesus is much better. And the second thing I would say to you is that there is a reason that we get upset when we see a man walk away from his wife. Right? There's a reason that hurts. There's a reason we get even angry because we know in our heart that he ought to be permanently loving because God has placed that in there. Where do we learn that from? Where do we learn that a husband's supposed to be permanently loving? From God. He's put that in his heart because he wants marriage to be a picture of what it's like to be the relationship between Christ and the church. He says, I'm the bridegroom. I am so devoted to you. Listen to that, Christian brothers and sisters. Listen to Jesus say, I am devoted to you. My love for you will never end. I belong to you and you belong to me. He gives us God's love. He brings God's love. But of course, I think Jesus thirdly teaches us that there are times to mourn. As we consider thirdly, that Jesus brings longing. Jesus brings longing. Notice his teaching continues in verse 35. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in those days. So he's telling us, well, there, there's a time to fast, right? Then, then they will fast. And I, I, I like the picture. I think it's very powerful. It's almost like you're at the wedding reception and all of a sudden the groom is gone. He's just gone. He's snatched away. Well, do you keep the party going? No, you say, where's the groom? I, I see the bride, but where's the, the groom? And, and someone says, he's, he's gone. He, he was taken away, as Jesus says. Well, what's your reaction? Well, that makes me sad. What do you mean he's taken away? That breaks my heart. I don't, in fact, I don't have much of an appetite anymore. I have sorrow in my soul. And Jesus says that the groom one day will be snatched away, taken away. You notice that, um, that this is something that will be done to him. This is Christ's first reference to the crucifixion. Simeon's mentioned it, but this will be the second time we've seen it in Luke's gospel, the first time from the words of Jesus. He sees what's coming. He his encounters with these Pharisees, he sees them as the storm clouds on the horizon. And he says here, they'll fast then. 
fast at this. Fast that He was crucified. Fast that our sins caused it. We even sang it today. One of my favorite songs ever. Died He for me who caused Him pain. I should play sorrow in our soul, I think. Snatched away to suffer on the cross for our rebellion. Snatched away to die our death. Isaiah foretold 700 years prior by oppression and judgment He was taken away. It was God's will that His Son be killed instead of you and I over our sin. And yes, part of the Christian faith is mourning over that and weeping over that. And yes, even fasting over that. Not as an expression of of piety, but of grief. There's a time to fast and there's a time to feast. And evidently to Jesus, it all depends on Him. right? Once again, Jesus is radically self-centered. When I'm here, everybody parties. When I'm gone, everybody fasts. It centers on Him. And so when Jesus was nailed to the cross and buried in that tomb, they, they undoubtedly fasted as Christ teaches us. But what about us? Do we, you know, we, Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus is in heaven. And in many ways, Jesus is with us. I'll never leave you nor forsake you, He said. Right? I'm with you even to the very end of the age, He said. So should we fast? Or should we feast? Well, yes. We should. There are times, of course, to celebrate, isn't it? And I think the majority of the Christian life should be marked with joy. We, we have the presence of Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. He is with us right now. That's why the fruit of the Spirit is what? It's joy. We should have joy in our hearts. And yet, there are times in which we should fast. And so we read in the Bible, Acts 13. What do we find the church doing? Well, fasting. And we, later on in the, in the book of Acts, we, what do we find the church doing again? Fasting. Second Corinthians 6, what is the church doing? Fasting. Second Corinthians 11, what is the church doing? Fasting. Different places and different times we find the church fasting. And so, so why are they fasting? Why are they mourning? Well, I think it's precisely because they long for Jesus. They long for Him to return. They long for Him to come and to to fix all things. They long to be with Him. They long for the time in which there'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more pain, no more sin. As you know, I was last month in uh, Accra, Ghana, in Western Africa. And on, on one particular day, I, I walked uh, through a refugee camp, a slum of eight, where 80,000 people live. And, and I, I feel like I, I've traveled um, well. I, I've gone to many developing nations. And, and have seen poverty, but I'll tell you, I have never seen anything like this. And I, I, you walk through these little corridors because everybody just makes their shack made of cardboard or tin or whatever it is, and they're right next to each other. And, and, and I had um, a, a child holding onto each finger, onto each of my hands, and then I had a couple on my arms and a couple on my legs, and I, I was just walking like this with all these children around me as I walked through sewage, sewage everywhere. I mean, the whole ground is sewage. It's just sludge. And the stench is, is just assaulting. Your eyes stink. And, and, and there's no running water. And there's no electricity. And there's barely walls and often not roofs in which these people live. And, and, and you're just overwhelmed. And you're thinking, oh my God, where do, I, where do we even start? I mean, I, this is so massive. And then... It, you begin to pray as you're walking through these alleyways and, and you're, at least I moved, I moved from like, okay, what, what am I supposed to do to, 
will you just come and fix this? Right? Because this is not how your image bearers are supposed to live. People should not live like this. So just come and fix it. You're coming, aren't you? Right? I think we ought to long for that. I think we ought to be homesick for Him. The Apostle Paul says, My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. It's far better. And Paul says, I long for that. Do you long for that, Christian? Are you homesick for your Lord? Lord Jesus, will you not come? Will you not come and fix all of this? I think we should perhaps have that longing. Man, I want to go to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Don't you? As one pastor says, not because you haven't tasted Christ's presence, but because you have tasted it and long with a deep, joyful ache of your soul. And no more to know more of his presence and power in your midst. And so there should be a longing. And I think we should fast, therefore. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says, When you fast, fast like this. So he assumes that Christians will be fasting. And so what, what is fasting? Fasting is simply going without food for a spiritual reason. Right, going without food for a spiritual reason. Uh, of course, it could be more than that. I, it's generally food, but, but it doesn't always have to be food. It could it'd be going, maybe you're diabetic. You go without television. For instance, you, you deny yourself that to devote yourself to God. Maybe when you fast, you decide to eat a slice of bread to take the edge off. Or, or maybe you just fast a meal during the day. I, it, 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 it doesn't simply have to be food, right? It's, you have to give up, give up something that's good in pursuit of God, right? But it has to be good. You can't say, like, I'm giving up gossiping. So that's my fast, right? That's repentance, okay? You should do that too. Um, but you give up something good to pursue. And so if, if, pursue God. And so some people say, well, well what do I give up? Or, or how long do I do it? Or, or when do I do it? And, and what we have is this tendency to get some rules on this. And, and we, we don't want to do that. We don't want to put rules on it. God doesn't give us commands on fasting. God doesn't give us instructions. It's a spiritual discipline. It's not commanded. It's commended to us. It's a means, it's a way in which we can see God. Like when you read your Bible, you're told to read your Bible, right? But you're not told, okay, you gotta read three chapters at this time of the day and, 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 and pray this way, right? No, it just says read the Bible, meditate on it. And then, and then you seek the Lord, okay, what does that look like? And so I, I think God would have us do this in our life. We should fast. I think there's many reasons to do so. I would commend to you Donald Whitney's wonderful book, The Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life, an incredible life-changing book that I read uh, at least two or three times. Uh, he gives ten reasons on why to fast. I love you, so I'll only give you three. All right. First of all, we should fast to strengthen sorrow. Strengthen sorrow, usually over sin. Many of the biblical fasts express grief over sin. I think of Jonathan fasting, even over his dad's sin, as his dad tried to kill David. Many of you have been struggling with the same sin for five years, for ten years, and you are living in a cycle, and you repent and last for a couple days, and then give yourself back to it, and then repent a little while later, and you go up and down. And I, I wonder if one part of your repentance is missing is grief and sorrow over your sin. You see, fasting is a way to pursue sorrow. Fasting is a way to humble yourself before God and say, God, I'm really sorry for this. I'm grieved over this. It will strengthen your sorrow. It will also strengthen your love for God. 
fast, you could fast to nourish your hunger for God, to reduce your hunger on the world. I think of Anna, the prophetess, never left the temple, but worship night and day, fasting and praying. John Piper says the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the mindless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. I wonder if your love for God is weak. I wonder if you feel like you've grown cold. Like You remember the day when you were just, God was so um, alive to you, and you, you found so much joy in pursuing Him, and now things are just kind of dead, and limping along. I wonder if you say, I'm not, I'm not going to be satisfied with this, Father, of just being lukewarm. And you, you begin to fast as a, as a way to draw near to God, to, to, to overcome that deadness in your soul. Well, thirdly, I would suggest to you that fasting will strengthen your prayer or maybe seeking guidance. This seems to be the most common fast in the Old Testament. For instance, Israel sought God's guidance when they went to war in the time of Judges by fasting. Or, or even Jesus' temptation, right? He's about to go to battle with the devil and, and he fasts for 40 days. He starts his ministry by strengthening himself, not by eating, but strengthening himself by fasting. Or the church in Antioch in Acts 13 fasted and prayed for guidance as to their missionary endeavors. Or Paul would fast before he would appoint elders. And so we seek God in prayer. Fasting will intensify that prayer. Fasting is kind of like an exclamation point at the end of the prayer. It's a cry with the body. I really mean this, God. I, I really need you to answer this. The Bible says the fervent prayer of the righteous man accomplishes much. One way to, to enhance the fervency of your prayer, I think, is to fast. And I wonder if, if maybe we did this more, if the American church did this more, even Hamilton Baptist Church practiced this discipline. Would we see the breakthroughs that we long for? When we see the lost come, when we see the, the baptismal used. I wonder, just a historical example of what I think God does through people who fast is the nation of South Korea. You know, in, in 1884, uh, the first Christian church was formed in South Korea. 1884. In 1984, 100 years later, there were 30,000 Christian churches. South Korea right now, by a proportion of its population, is the most Christian nation in the world. Why? I mean, how can something like that take place? Well, if you study the church in South Korea, they are devoted to prayer and fasting. It's in their DNA. One denomination has had over 20,000 people complete a 40-day fast that God might grow his kingdom. It's who they are. And God seems to bless that cry. And so you say, should I fast? I, I mean, I... I think, I think Jesus expects it to happen occasionally. I, I think it's ultimately up to you. I think if you want to strengthen your love for God or express grief over sin or to, to seek strength in prayer, I think it would be a good idea. Should you tell me you're doing it? No. Right? You should do it in a closet. It's between you and the Lord, unless we do it corporately like we did last November when we fasted for the persecuted church. I think Jesus brings this longing and we express it by fasting. Well, let me say lastly and fourthly, Jesus fulfills the old and brings the new. And at this point, he leaves the conversation of fasting and he begins to talk about the change that he is bringing, that he's bringing this new access to God. He's bringing something totally new. And he does so by telling us three parables. Each one starts with the phrase, no one. And it's really the same message in all three, out with the old and in with the new. So look in verse 20, 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece 
from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And so he, he a very simple story, right? If you have a tear in your old garment uh, and you, you patch it with a new garment, you create two problems. One, you destroy the new garment, right? My, a legger doesn't cut a piece out of a new dress to patch an old dress. You destroy the new. And the second problem, Jesus says, when you wash it, that new patch is going to shrink and rip apart from the old, making matters even worse. And so Jesus says there's new and there's old, right? And they don't go together. We're not taking the new, which I think Jesus is bringing, and we're patching up the old with it. We're starting something completely new, which I think is the meaning of the next parable in verse 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. And, and so what he's talking about wine fermentation. When you would create a wineskin, you would kill a goat and you would skin it all in one piece. And then you would sew that back up and the neck would be where you would pour the wine out of. And, and that, that new skin was flexible. And when you put the, the new wine into that skin and it begins to ferment and the gas begins to, to be created, uh, it, the, the, wine, the skin stretches. It allows for that fermentation. But if you take an old skin, which has now become brittle and inflexible, and you put the new wine in and that begins to ferment, it's going to burst that skin. It won't stretch with it. And all the, the wine will be spilled and the wine skin will be destroyed. So Jesus says in verse 38, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Again, he's contrasting the new and the old. The, the new and the old, they don't go together, what Jesus is saying. And so what Jesus has come to teach is that he's, I'm not here to patch up the old. Right? I, I'm, I'm not here to fit inside the old. I'm here to replace the old. I have brought a new covenant. Now there's continuity with the old covenant, isn't there? It's, we've always been saved by faith and not by works. But our relationship with God, how we approach God, how we understand God, has totally transformed. Right? Did you bring a sacrifice today? Right? Are, are there lambs out in the foyer? No. You had, no one even thought of that. Right? Because everything's new. Right? Are you going to eat bacon this afternoon? Well, if you're a Christian, you are. Right? Right? Because everything's new, right? All these rules are, are gone, aren't they? Right? Gone are the sacrifices and the circumcision and the temple and the priesthood. At least it's supposed to be gone. And, and national identity and Passover, right? We're throwing out the old, Jesus says. Not because the old was bad. No. The old's been fulfilled. It was all pointing to Christ. It will be like a flyer that you put up for some event and the flyer announces the event is coming. Well, once the event comes, you don't keep the flyers up. They fulfilled their purpose. You, you take them down. And so Jesus says, I, I'm not, I've, I've come to bring something totally new. I, I haven't come so you could add a little bit of Jesus here and there, sprinkle it, patch it on here, do this with, over here. I've come to make everything new. In fact, if you're a Christian, he's made you new, hasn't he? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, behold, uh, the old has passed, the new has come. He is a new creation in Christ, right? We have become new. He's not interested in, 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 in just tinkling uh, with you. He's interested in transforming you. He's not interested in improving you. He wants to make an all new you. He wants to make you totally different. This is what Christ has come. With Jesus, he just changes everything. He, he changes the world. The world would never be the same once he came. I've come to bring everything new, he declares. In fact, I appreciate what Warren Wearsby says 
When Jesus came to usher in the new, not unite with the old, the mosaic economy was decaying, getting old, and ready to vanish away. Jesus would establish a new covenant in his blood, and the law would be written on human hearts, not on stones. Salvation, therefore, is not a partial patching up of one's life. It is a whole new robe of righteousness. When you trust Jesus Christ, you become part of a new creation. This is what he's come to do. In fact, he has one more word for us in verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. And what he's teaching us here is that, that some have already made up their mind. Right? They've tried the old. They like the old. They're not going to want the new. In other words, Jesus is saying people will reject me. There are people like these Pharisees who are so uh, uh, united with the old, so invested in the old system, that they will not come after me. They will not follow me. Despite what he's doing, despite the miracles, despite the love, despite the grace, despite the promise of new life, people will still desire their old ways, the old wine. And some want to patch Jesus onto their lives. Some want to bottle him up. Others refuse to try him at all. And it's sad, isn't it? Because Jesus offers boundless joy in eternity. He offers eternal paradise in the presence of the bridegroom. But you must turn from your ways. You must turn from living the life where you're king to making Jesus your king. I appreciate uh, the Aesop fable, which I think illustrates what Jesus brings. Though he wasn't trying to illustrate it, but it is a beautiful picture of an eagle flying in the heavens. And the stork, and he looks down and, and he sees a stork in the swamp and the stork is feeding on frogs and, and he, and the angel, uh, the, the, the eagle in the heavens says down to the stork, why don't you come up to the heavens? Why don't you fly up here? And the stork asks, are, are there any frogs up there? Right? And, and the eagle says, no, there's no frogs up here, but there is the glory, unimaginable glory of flying in the open heavens. And the stork answers, you can keep your heavens and I will keep my frogs. You could keep your Jesus. You could keep your feasting. You could keep your eternal life. You could keep your devoted and permanent love by the one who has made me. I choose to wallow here in the mud. That's how many people respond to the gospel. That's what Jesus warned would happen. I wonder if, if you're here today and you're, you're not a Christian. Uh, we're delighted that you're here. Uh, we do hope you feel welcome and loved. Um, but please understand, we believe that Jesus has come to give life. He has come to give abundant life. He has come to transform life. And we believe that the only way to be fit before God is through faith in Jesus Christ. He has come and lived a perfect life and died upon a cross as we have sung today in order to pay for our sins. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And now he offers all who would turn from their own works and just simply trust in him by faith, place their love upon him, that he would forgive all their sins and that he would enter into a relationship with them similar to a groom and a bride, a father and a child, a maker and a beloved creation. You could do that today. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
I offer you, based upon the authority of Jesus Christ, my Lord, abundant and eternal life. I don't know where else you'll find that, but you could have it this very moment if you will simply bow your knee to King Jesus and place your faith in him. And for the majority of us, our brothers and sisters in Christ today, I pray that we would leave this place rejoicing in our salvation, rejoicing in our Lord, having great and amazing joy in who Jesus is. And at the same time, let there be an ache in us, an ache over his absence, a mourning over our sin, that we might even decide to fast this week in desperation for him to act. I want you to to find that joy and yet not be totally satisfied. In fact, I just want to show you one last thing as we end this morning. You notice what he says in verse 34. I find this fascinating. And Jesus said to them, can you make... And notice what he says next. Who's he talking about? The wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them. It's almost at this time his disciples were the guests at the wedding. But Christian, you and I are not simply wedding guests. We are invited to that wedding not just to observe it, but to be part of it. He has made us his bride through his death on the cross. Let that be your joy. The joy spoken of in the book of Revelation in chapter 19 when Scripture says that I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. One day He'll come. One day we will go to that marriage feast of the Lamb. May that day come soon. Our Father, we thank You for our Lord. We thank You for His great love for us. We, I hope, continue to be amazed that you, our God, didn't send us away when we chose rebellion, but have come after us and with great cost, infinite cost, has made a way for us to be redeemed, made a way for us to be fit before you. And yet you don't simply save us from our sins. You don't simply just give us forgiveness and eternal life, but you invite us into a relationship with you that is far more profound than anything we could even imagine doing. You say, I not only have made you, I not only have saved you, but I love you. Can we find joy in that, Father? No matter what is happening in our life, can we leave this place with joy in our heart that our God has found a way to love us, devoted to us, forever? Let that truth carry us all the way into eternity in the day we stand before our Lord and are united to Him forever. May you come soon, Lord Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stay.